Sir Balpin and Tuna Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance on the program. It's his fortnightly appearance. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest in this edition of the program, as he does every two weeks. Eric Longenhagen endeavors here to analyze all prospects of particular note. On this occasion, Longenhagen and I gaze wistfully for reasons I do not recall at the list of selections from the 2011 draft. The list which includes, for example, Danny Holson and Bubba Starling, celebrated players at the time who have been chewed up by circumstance. Supposed moments during that interval of our conversation, we discussed some velocity spikes among Dodgers prospects, Walker Bueller and Mitchell White, the tyranny of the first-hand look, how one can develop an attachment to a player he or she has seen in person, and also, again, for reasons I cannot entirely recall, the merits of Ubaldo Jimenez's mechanics and how they might influence younger players. Is it an intimate conversation? It is an intimate conversation. I'm speaking to you with very little clothing on. So let us get to that conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs. How do you, who does it feature? Lead prospect analyst of Fangraphs, Eric Longenhagen. When does it begin? Right now. sort of constant maintenance and so things like break down like verifiable fact <laughs> yeah well you can't well you don't have you don't have the opportunity to verify every fact that would right. kill you listen right. let me ask you a question this is a baseball related question okay <clears throat> what schools did carlos pena attend <laughs> wasn't it like uh he attended two Northeastern, right? Northeastern's one, and you know why I'm bringing it up. We will there will be a big unveil in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know the other one off the top of my head, but I know he was he, drafted out of Northeastern. He was, yeah. And make sure you're close to the mic now, Eric. It would be okay, I'm sorry. Be yeah, yeah. If the I'm trying the to. Listener were. It's hard to be close to the mic and maintain something resembling a Homo sapien posture. <laughs> 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 Wright State is the other uh, oh, okay. is the other school he attended, which is interesting for let's say two reasons. One is, mm, oh yeah, one is because we were just uh, speaking about one popular American comedian, and another popular American comedian. I believe he either attended Wright State, well, he might have attended Wright State. I know that Dave Chappelle, however, lives in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Or right, st- or right state is located. So that's another that's thing. And also, um, also I think believe Wright State started. They began the season. They began the season very well. Which is strange because so they, they lost a lot of they lost a lot of talent last year's draft. Did they? Yeah, Sean Murphy. Wait, are you, do you? Who? Sean Murphy, the catcher that the Athletics drafted in, like I think the third round. You, you know, you're exactly a – you know, I'm not going to applaud it's bad for audio, but you deserve that. You deserve some applause. You knew that Sean Murphy – yeah, he went third round to Oakland last year. Yeah, but they had like a bunch of – because their, their team was good last year too. Um, but yeah, like Murphy – Murphy's really talented. He just sort of fell because of injury. Mm-hmm. And um, 
But yeah, they had a bunch of guys go in last year's draft. I want to say like maybe like close to half a dozen guys get, got drafted. Horizon League. Mm-hmm. They're twenty-two and eight right now. Eleven-one in the Horizon League. That sounds pretty good, right? I'm they also very excited beat... to like get back into primarily like college baseball now. Oh, you're you're headed there, right? With the list in the yeah. first in their first series of the year, Wright State took two out of three from Clemson at Clemson. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like there you go. Florida Gulf Coast is having an incredible season as well. They like Gulf Coast. won. Yeah, Florida Gulf Coast. Remember the the Dunk City Florida Gulf Coast team in the NCAA oh, yeah, tournament a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, their baseball team's like having a great year. My uncle teaches there, so like I I sort of follow their athletics program in a way that I don't others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they've won midweek games against like Miami and Florida and Florida State. And, like they've, <laughs> they're having like a weird <laughs> sort of year. They had a guy drafted out of there last year named Jake Knoll. I think it was the Nationals that picked him up that I thought could hit a little bit when I saw him in the fall. Um, but other than that, like I don't, I don't really know if they have anything in the way of prospects going on there right now. But like it's just this random. In a state teeming with monster college baseball programs, they've they've just had a great like a great start to their year. Can you do a thing for me, which is to, in a, in a very the briefest, most superficial way possible, yeah, explain to me through the lens of baseball the differences between Florida Gulf Coast, Florida Atlantic, and Florida International. What, like, where are they in terms of their baseball prestige? Florida, I'd say F, FIU and FAU every three to four years has, like, a top 100 type prospect. Okay. Um, just because of how much high school baseball talent is in Florida, there is a trickle-down effect where – the uh, the smaller schools, like the ones we've just listed, mm-hmm. get a prospect that turns out better than than people uh, anticipated. Chris sure. Sale went to Florida Gulf Coast. So, okay, that's what I was gonna. I remember Chris Sale. Right. I know. I mean, I know. I, I don't. I don't just remember him. I acknowledge that he's a good major leaguer currently, mm-hmm. but as a prospect, yes. And I was wondering which one he attended. It was Florida Gulf Coast. Yeah. Because uh, that was, like, the big deal that was made when, well, at least in Florida anyway, when the Red Sox traded for him was because they trained in Fort Myers where FGCU is. Where did uh, – what school did Matt Perk attend? Perk was TCU. Oh, well, that's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> huh. that, is, that is nothing why, – why would – why would I – why would the name Matt Perk – occur to me when I'm thinking about Chris Sale in Florida schools. Is there any reason? I don't know. Okay. Is it um is it like a funky delivery lefty type thing? It must be, right? It's gotta be. Okay. I yeah. saw Matt Perk pitch maybe three years ago in uh, Were you here for Fall League? No was no that... no the Carolina League. He was old for the oh. Carolina League. It was a game featuring both Mookie Betts and Michael Taylor. Nice. 
Yeah, and uh, Matt Perk, I believe, made an appearance in there, and it was not. I don't think it was a dynamic appearance. Is that fair? To, is that all right to say? Yeah, I. I mean, he has worn a big league uniform. He exceeded mm-hmm. rookie eligibility last year, <laughs> so like he's got he got there. Um, but and I, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you a whole lot off the top of my head about what kind of prospect he was, bef- other than a good one before he blew out at TCU. Uh, but I saw him in the fall league, his pro debut in 2011, and he was bad. Like he, I don't even know if he recorded an out. I think he just got trashed in like the first inning of a st- of a start, out in surprise. Um. I probably have notes on it somewhere, but yeah, like he's he's pitching in AAA right now. You know, you watch as a, as a, White Sox. I don't I don't know if you have the same experience of this as I do. Watching the draft, though, you know it's and probably coverage of it is as um, robust now as it has ever been. Sure, but especially watching the first round of the draft, the sort of enthusiasm and this happens, of course, across all sports. The sort of enthusiasm attached to each pick, you know, um, little. Robbie Robbie Manfred comes out. Bobby Ems <laughs> comes out and says the name. I forget if this is actually how it occurs. But then, but then, uh, who is it? Usually, like Jim Cowles or someone has, <clears throat> you know, uh, has a report to deliver about it. And you're like, and you're, and, and of course, like in the other sports too, it's really just all hope that's attached to them. But then, if you go back, even for example, as recently as the 2011 draft, when Perk was selected. And you look at the players. Now he was he was taken in the uh, third round of that particular draft. But right. I think it, if he hadn't been busted, he probably would have been selected earlier. Right. Right. But <clears throat> even in that first round, this is this is 2011. So this is six years ago already. Yeah. You so would we think should probably that, have a good idea of looking back at this and who has panned out and who was not. Right. So uh, Cole Bauer and Bundy were taken one, three, and five. But number two was Danny Holson. Yeah, he. I mean, he was he was pretty close to. He was like a polished college pitcher at that point, right? Yeah he he was like eighty eight to ninety two with command and two polished secondary pitches. Um, he's another guy who I saw like make his pro debut in the fall league and like was supposed to be a quick moving, above average big league starter, like one of those quote-unquote, safer type of of draft picks. Um, like, really advanced pitchability and sequencing with modest but effective stuff mm-hmm. and just could not stay healthy. And, I, I mean, I, the, the Mariners supposedly almost took Francisco Lindor at two. Yeah. He, he ended up going... I don't know, somewhere later in the top ten, like seven or something, to Cleveland. Well, uh, ex post facto, after the fact, I yeah. would suggest that they do select Francisco yeah. Lindor. I would suggest that the Pirates take Lindor <laughs> at <laughs> one. Uh, but, yeah, like, Holton went to, and obviously that's it's a situation that was not necessarily in Seattle's control, right? Because you can't mm-hmm. – and the same thing goes with, with Perk. Like, Guys, sometimes stuff happens that's not – no one's wrong. I think the Mariners evaluated Holton correctly. There are just – there seem to be – because the developmental road is so long in baseball compared to the NBA and the NFL, uh, there are many more opportunities for something 
bizarre or random to happen that completely uh, derails a, a player's development. Yeah, and, and or you even not think that with Holton that 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 timeline would have been shorter. Uh, and I, you know, it was, but uh, certainly I think was Bubba Starling in that draft as well. Yeah, he was. A, he was five. Yeah. Right. So okay. So Starling is like the the guy who you take knowing full well that the chances of it totally working out are much smaller than they are for someone like Holton. But uh, it's um, the the landmines are are pretty similar. Right. So do you think that? You know, I, I'm, this is probably dangerous territory into which we're, uh, I've, I'm forcing you to wade because there's a, probably a lot of data on it. But just from your – let's get your reaction to it though. Selecting like the toolsy – like the toolsy um, high-risk, high-reward high school position player, do you, does that seem to you to have the same amount of – of uh, risk essentially as the proficient polished college pitcher, right? Because if you just take the hitter versus the pitcher, it's the, the hitter is always less of a risk, right? But but Bubba Starling obviously had had risks attached to him. Sure, yeah, I think I'd say that not all risks are created equally. I think mm-hmm. uh, injury risk. Makeup risk, skill based, like polish risk, it's all, they're all different things. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the safe college pitcher route is just, I, when has that, when has that really worked out? <laughs> I, you the know, safe, yeah. So, because I mean, if you look at the guys, the college pitchers that have done well, none of them sort of, I don't think, fit that description really, right? Uh, well, it's interesting you asked that question because there were two college pitchers taken on either side of Danny Holson. Right, but neither Cole yeah. nor Bauer was necessarily viewed as that sort of – that right. type of guy. If anything, in the 2011 draft, which I'm now looking at, Taylor Youngman would have been – and Jed Bradley would have been the guys who I said fit that description, and neither of them has worked out especially well. Chris Reed, probably not quite – uh, that sort of guy. It is. It is. You know, even just like five years after the fact, there's just like these, like there's just like a, a litany of names here of of like guys who are already off the map. You know. Yeah. <laughs> They're just not. It grinds you up. Yeah, it does. It really does. What do these asterisks mean? I think the way that you want to do it is almost the other way, the way that we're not doing it. Like, it's one thing to go draft to draft and look at everyone and say, oh, okay, this guy was this type of prospect and this guy was this type yeah. of prospect. But really what we should be doing is, like, looking at the war leaderboards for each position and, and asking ourselves, well, what type of prospect was this guy as an amateur? Yeah. And seeing you know, if you there know, are any common trends in that way. Jeff Sullivan did a post maybe three years ago now to which I return with some frequency if not by way of my computer then at least my memory which is a post on he called it something like where oh yeah like where did good players come from and he just wanted to know I think in particular in this case he looked at he looked at the players who recorded maybe three or more wins um, in, in a season 
and it was maybe like a three-year span, right? So say like 2012 to 2015. Yeah. And then he said, well, where, where did they, like, where did they, were they good? Were, oh, yeah, were, were good players, were they good prospects? And, uh, well, this will not shock you, but not all of those players who recorded three wins or more in a season had necessarily appeared on a top 100 prospect list. And I think mm-hmm. it was roughly, I think two-thirds had, which I don't know if you if you've done a list and you've counted for two-thirds of the future good players, and maybe that sounds good. But it's, uh, I guess, suppose it also reveals that uh, the fact that, um, you know, that there are good players who are not going to be on the prospect list. I mean, on Eric Lo- Eric Longenagin's top 100 list is going to account for all of them. All of them. <laughs> I think that's a given. But. Yeah, I but, definitely um, did not, like, freak out last night as I'm hearing from someone who's seen Sir Anthony Dominguez and then look at my Phillies list and see him in the teens. I didn't. I totally did not freak out at like one a.m. last night or anything. You, like do you that. handle it? Do you handle it <laughs> fine. Well, as you've noted, however, the, you know the. I don't know. It's not necessarily a limitation. It's a reality of the prospect list is that by definition, it is a snapshot of you know that collection of prospects at the time uh, that you're writing the list. You know, right? And it's also not. I think, and I'm sure that Jeff would agree. No, I'm not. But <laughs> I think <laughs> it's if you took a guy. Let's like let's look at my top 100. Well, okay, Yadier Alvarez. Let's just throw that. Yadier Alvarez. There. Okay, because yeah. we know what Yadier Alvarez is, and he's a good example for this type of thing. For those of you that don't know, Yadier Alvarez is like a 20 year old Cuban righty in the Dodgers system who throws like 94, 97, touches 100 with the most beautiful and effortless delivery that most scouts have ever seen. He's got good breaking ball feel. Like, it's everything you want to see from, at the time he was signed, a teenage, now early 20-year-old pitching prospect, 6'4", 190, very athletic, body has projection. Like, it's all the things, right? Wait, is he like if Jamison Tyon had... No, no, sorry, if Tyler Glasnow had command? Is that sort of what you're... Uh, no, I mean, like, no, not quite. Okay. Glasnow is sort of a freak because he's like six foot seven. And All right, well, then ignore what I... Alvarez is like the prototypical 6'4". Like, Josh Beckett would be another type of, mm-hmm. like, that prototype guy. Right. Um, whether or not Yadier Alvarez... You could tell me that, that in five years from now, Yadier Alvarez isn't going to be any good. But he still belongs on a top 100 list because he is like if you like I said if you go and look at like the the war leaderboards for pitchers the guys who are at the top of it a large percentage of them were at one time this guy with this build and this sort of just arm strength and feel for spinning a ball a little bit and like that's what most of these guys were and. They add other skills as they develop, but like Justin Verlander at one time was just a big guy who threw hard and who was like passed over. Like scouts didn't like him because <laughs> that's all he was. And Madison Bumgarner at one point was just a huge kid who threw hard. And then for a while he didn't throw hard anymore and had to learn how to do other things, which is helpful. Right. There was a crisis. There was a crisis. Yeah. But, but like, he survived it, I think. And there are always exceptions, and those guys have to be scouted too. Like Marcus Stroman, you have to 
look at Marcus Stroman and say, oh, okay, look what all these things that this guy does. I don't care that he's five foot nine anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, but you have to use what has worked in the past as your guide for trying to predict the future. And so uh, the types of players who, if we look at that piece that Sullivan wrote, which I don't have in front of me, but I'm willing to bet that they don't typically fit that, you know, those molds. Mm-hmm. And that's not an excuse for missing them from a scouting perspective, but it is a reason for it. Yeah. Uh, be- because it just takes it takes longer for that skepticism about those guys to be quieted down. And sometimes those guys just succeed through the minors so quickly that publicly we don't have time to correct it. So like let's say another Dodgers prospect, Mitchell White. Okay. White was like a, a second rounder out of Santa Clara and uh, was a relatively unknown prospect in the public sphere. He had been hurt. He would pitched in the bullpen in college. It, The baseball industry itself, and specifically the Dodgers, found out about White sooner than we could on the public side. Because it like takes time for that information to, to get to us. And the ones who are better at it get it quicker on the writer side, uh, but it still takes time. And so like white went in the second round and then I saw him here in the ACL. So like I was like the first guy in the public sector to like see Mitch white and really say, okay, this is what this guy is. And he was like 90, 94 with a good cutter and a good curveball, And he threw strikes and he looked pretty good. And then he was shut down and the winter happens. And all of us write our top 100 lists and our Dodgers top prospect lists and all this. And then Mitch White comes out this spring and is like 94 to 97. (laughs) He's never been 94 to 97 before. And he just shows up and that's what he is. And now, before we know that that's how good he is, but he's not on my top 100 list. And I'm not – and he's like down somewhere – probably in like the early teens or whatever on my Dodgers list from the fall. And I'm not like about to, I can't constantly be updating and neither can any other prospect writer, my order of things like in perpetuity, cause you just never get done. And I like, which is already a thing. <laughs> so <laughs> it is very much a thing. Yeah. Isn't it? So, so say the Oakland A's and Texas Rangers. So let's just say, right, and like no one would no one would disagree that it was it's legitimate over the winter to be skeptical of Walker Bueller, who's another Dodgers prospect who after he came back from Tommy John last summer was just throwing harder than he ever had before at Vanderbilt, like ever. And looked incredible. Like nobody would nobody would argue that it it's good reasoning to be skeptical about a guy who looks incredible in like two or three inning stints for a couple weeks before he's shut down. But now Mitchell White and Walker Bueller are like going to move pretty quickly. And Bueller and White might, let's say that they are just so good that even on an innings limit, like the Dodgers need pitching help in the big leagues 
and they're in the big leagues this year, and they're on the big league roster long enough that they exhaust their rookie eligibility. And so they're not eligible for a top 100 prospect list next year. And then Mitch White goes on to become a, like, number two starter in the big leagues and was never on a top 100 prospect list. But it's only because of the timelines that, that, you know, we work with in this little niche industry that caused it not incompetence or not that scouts missed him or not any of that stuff. It's just he developed into a big leaguer and graduated from my scope of work before he could get put on that sort of public uh, pedestal in a Do you way think that is any... like cemented in stone. You, you've you cited two pitchers in the Dodgers system who actually, they have pretty similar profiles. They're both <clears throat> college pitchers. Yeah. They both were quite good in college. Uh, of course, Walker Bueller was good in the SEC, which is very challenging. Mitchell White was good in the, well, I guess, the West Coast Conference for Santa Clara. Um, he was quite good on a slightly less prominent stage, but still quite good. And then they both, now Bueller was returning from, from Tommy John, but they both uh, are exhibiting, so they've already, they've already exhibited some sort of, They've, they've exhibited performance, right? Mm-hmm. They they showed that they could perform, and now they've added velocity to that. Now, do you think that there's any that there's any coincidence, or is it something more than coincidence? They both play for the same organization. Uh, no, I think you're on to something there. I think mm-hmm. we've seen a few organizations who specifically have shown an ability. To develop velocity. Oh, uh, one second. <laughs> Callie? Hi. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I'm potting. Yeah, just but it's it's Eric. Hi. No, I guess they're late. I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll fish up Eric. We can yeah we can yeah go spend time. This will be wife. a short one. That's fine. I love you, sweetie. Love you too. Can you shut the damn dog up? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you, you're telling me I was on to something you're like oh Carson you're oh, so yeah, yeah. Carson you're the, wow what an observation <laughs> um, yeah so you're on to something <laughs> uh, we obviously during the course of writing up every org there are some clear core competencies that some organizations display and specifically the Dodgers the Yankees, uh, Cleveland, I'd say, are a few of a growing number of teams who seem able to conjure velocity out of thin air. And I think we know what's going on. I think it's like pretty common knowledge at this point that a lot of teams are starting to use weighted ball programs uh, to coax more velo out of their their pitching prospects. Um, While we're not sure like the long-term effects that's going to have on a specific pitcher, it's possible pitchers go the way of the NFL running back uh, in years to come. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting, and I would definitely say that the Dodgers are, are on the short list of teams that I, I know for a fact are, like, using weighted balls. You know, I don't know. It, it actually wasn't weighted balls, um, but uh, there is a – in terms of an organizational impact 
on velocity. The yesterday, 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 David Lorla published a, a brief interview with Brad Brock, a reliever for the Baltimore Orioles, who's now throwing like oh, 94, 95, something like that. Higher than it was in his last year or two with San Diego. And I guess it was all mechanical. But, I mean, according to Brock himself, he said he showed up at Baltimore and they're like, yeah, you're throwing against your own body. Like, yeah. you know, I think he had he had started throwing like more and more cross body kind of without r- realizing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would seem without anyone else r- realizing it either. And when he showed up Baltimore, they're like, yeah, you just need to kind of like remain upright, more of a stride directly towards the plate. And he put on he said he put on four miles per hour in a day just by cleaning up his <laughs> mechanics. Yeah, I think not only are you going to see those those cross body deliveries, which I characterize primarily by where that front foot lands. Watch where – imagine if a pitcher – if there was a line directly perpendicular shooting out of the pitcher's uh, rubber toward home plate. Uh, and so that line is like totally straight, cut you know cuts the distance right uh, in half uh, between the rubber and, and home plate. When pitchers – imagine pitchers like starting their delivery on that line. If their front foot lands before the line, that's like a cutoff sort of cross-body delivery. And if it lands mm-hmm. right on the line, that's like what I would describe as a very direct delivery. And then like the Ubaldo Jimenez type deal where the, the foot crosses over the line and is on the other side of it, like you way open up. Now, that's what I'd call like a pitcher who opens up really hard. I think that type of delivery – is going to become a little more. I, mean, I know there are other guys who do it. I can't think of them off the top of my head. The, the, the delivery where you open up. Where you really open up, like where you really clear your hips and that front foot goes way past that line drawn mm. between the pitching rubber and the plate. I think that will be a thing we start seeing more of. Uh, would it be an I, advantage to doing that? I mean, just mechanically. Do I you think – I've always had a distaste for it because anecdotally the guys I've seen do it have a little bit of command trouble with Ubaldo Jimenez, of course, being the chief example again. Um, Because I do think there's value in a direct, simple delivery as far as strike throwing goes. But I think some of the biomechanical research that I've read about pitching and specifically about hitting is that you generating that sort of torque uh is valuable for velocity and oh, it's, va- it's okay. valuable yeah. for power like think about the guys who have that new wave pull only power hitting swing like josh donaldson and jose bautista these are guys who really like when the opportunity presents itself for them to do so when like there's an inside pitch and they can get away with it they open those hips up like they step in the proverbial bucket and that front yeah. foot that front foot strides down the third baseline instead of directly back at the pitcher and they sacrifice plate coverage to do it but they really generate more torque into the baseball and can pull the ball with more authority and and uh i think that there are biomechanical similarities with what uh generates power at the plate and power on the mound. And so it wouldn't surprise me if as we continue to learn more about uh, how to throw hard, 
which people really seem to care a whole lot about, and for good reason. <laughs> well, it seems to correlate pretty strongly to uh, to to um, outs, you know, to preventing runs. Right. Yeah. But yeah, like I think, I think that that might be a thing we start to see a little bit more of. Um, whether or not it's good, I don't, I don't know. And it, it's totally like a speculative thing on my part to say that. But mm-hmm. I just my. My not my gut, but like your in, your in, your intuition, right? But it sounds. I just think it's an educated <laughs> guess. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm emphasizing the educated, so don't don't <laughs> at me on Twitter. <laughs> where was it? Temple? Is that where you were educated? No, that's where Jill went. I went to St. Joe's. Oh, yeah, you went to St. Joe's. The best player St. Joe's has ever produced is Jamie who? Moyer. Oh, okay. Okay, that's He's pretty good. He's also like the only one. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Best player that for Northeastern now. for now. Best player that Northeastern has ever produced. I don't know. I'd say probably Carlos Pena. Yeah, you'd probably you'd have to say Carlos Pena. Best pitcher looks like Adam Odovino. Okay, that's still not that's not bad. He's got such an interesting slider, Odovino. Okay. And best player, uh, best player the College of Charleston has ever produced. It's decisive. Van Gundy. <laughs> Brett Gardner. That's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So, and the reason I bring it up is because I'm going to see a Northeastern and College of Charleston game tomorrow, which may not have the same sort of profile as the game you were forcing me to watch last week. <laughs> I should say, so you had you were harassing me about it for a little yeah. while. You had said, Carson. You live in New England. UNC is coming to Boston College. Right. And J.B. Bukowskis. Bukowskis. J.B. Bukowskis. No, no, no. You had it right the first time. Burke Harper. J.B. Bukowskis is going to be there. And uh, he said, Carson, have you ever seen a one-one person? That's what you said. And I said no. Yeah, because I'm not trying to. to. I was trying to appeal to your – Mm-hmm. What some I don't know some nebulous thing I thought existed inside you that apparently I pride you thought I had pride no <laughs> <laughs> no you were not no <laughs> the, and and what did I and what did I tell you what did I tell you how did I respond to you Eric Long you said it was going to be cold yeah you should, like sent me pellets. the weather report and you were like yeah, yeah there are, there are literally ice chunks of ice, ice falling from the sky falling right the now sky. as you send not me that weather. message. Not weather. If if you participated in a Passover seder recently, you will know no, that that is that ice pellets is actually one of the plagues, <laughs> and it was visiting. It was visiting uh, Boston. It, was, it actually doesn't look like uh, Bruschkowski uh, pitched that well. I don't he know. He did not. No. No. Probably because of the weather. <laughs> might, might might be weather related. You ever seen a disappointing one one? I have. <laughs> I mean, like, look, I don't know. I don't think Bukasis is going to go 1-1. Uh, I think that he – I think that his name will be brought up. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was more me trying to get you to go. <laughs> yeah. So we could have video for <laughs> for the draft. Do you think that um, – do you think that anyone from – do you think that anyone from either Northeastern – or College of Charleston will be going one one. No. no. Do you think any of them will be going like three twenty seven? I'm glad that I that you didn't go. To be honest with you, 
Okay. It spared yeah. you. Right. What did we we share we share this opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it spared you like this weird. Whenever you go see, and eventually you will. But whenever you do see a guy who is in that conversation, and like you get all jonesed up for it, and maybe you drive a great distance to see him, mm-hmm. and it's disappointing for one reason or another, it is a gigantic bummer. <laughs> like one that you like you feel disappointed about it for a long time, and not only that, but if you're forced to do analysis. It totally screws with it because, like, I went and saw Carlos Rodon at North Carolina State. Sure, yeah. At Maryland. And he was horrible, really <laughs> horrendously bad. And he had, like, back issues that year, and it was it was just, like, a really terrible look. So you see this guy who, coming into the spring, you're, you're being told is, like, this generational talent. The guy who is the clear favorite to be the top pick in the draft, and then you see him, and he's really, really bad. You're you sort of take that away, and you can't get that taste out of your mouth. And you know, objectively, he's better than what you saw, but you still saw him that way. Yeah, the way the human brain works, that it's uh, it's almost impossible to escape the influence right. of that of that firsthand look. Even though, right, you could you could attempt to fight it with all of your, you know, all the sort of objective, rational powers of your mind, but you'd never be able to, you'd never be able to get that out of your head. That's because our brains are too dumb. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So like, even though that day Carlos Rodon had the best slider I've ever seen on an amateur pitcher ever, mm-hmm. he was still terrible, and you know it. Had I been in any sort of position where I was analyzing that draft, it probably would have colored my analysis and uh, ranking of him in that in that year's draft. Yeah. Well, thankfully it didn't. <laughs> thankfully, I was. I don't even remember what I was doing, at, like actually doing at that time. <clears throat> I'm pretty. I pretty. I think we're going to have a matchup here at this Northeastern College of Charleston game, Eric. Yeah. Between Mike Fitzgerald and Nathan Ocker is my guess. All right. Yeah. Allow me to report back to you next time we speak about this Friday afternoon clash between Mike Fitzgerald and Nathan Ocker. Well, I hope you have a good time. And then I'll be able to tell you about my upcoming Southern California excursion, which is both – Oh, yeah. So you're literally about to go to Los Angeles. Yeah. Like I'm still – uh, getting my literal <laughs> together to go. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> no, but like, um, I need to pack and do all that kind of stuff. And like, yeah, there okay. are things being laundered right now. I'm, t- I'm speaking to you with like very little clothing on because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to go to L.A. to hang out with. Jill for a couple days to sort of celebrate like being basically done with the prospect list. Basically done, yeah. Yeah. And um, don't take that tone with me, young man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but then I'm staying. I'm staying there to do the Boris Scott Boris high school tournament. Oh right, and you're going to see uh, uh, Hunter Green. 
Well, I mean, there are rumors that he's being shut down. Okay, all right. Um, but his school you, you've is, seen, you've seen oh, at least at least as far as I mean, if anything, I'll get to see him play shortstop and hit. But okay. I'm not. Yeah, I've seen Hunter Green like five other times. But um, yeah, I would like to see have seen if his breaking ball has improved at all since last summer when I thought it was just kind of you know okay. Um, what was he sitting at when you saw him last summer? Like ninety four, ninety six, touching ninety eight, and he's been mostly like ninety six, ninety eight, uh, supposedly up to one hundred two. This spring, you know what, I'm gonna which I, I kind of I kind of don't believe. <laughs> what uh, so, do you think? Totally you. I mean, do you think he's a pitching prospect right now? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. There, I, there are other. There are definitely scouts that like like him as a as an infielder and think that he he has power like he, that he absolutely has power um mm-hmm. like uh keith law and i like we've talked about this and keith is a little uh heavier on him as an infield prospect than i am because uh, like i watched him for a week play shortstop at area codes and um he's a 40 runner his actions he's an incredible athlete his actions are great it's plenty of arm like i could totally see how you you think he could play a viable professional shortstop but he's also like 64 210 right now probably something like that uh maybe that's a little heavy but it's pretty big though yeah he's, six, big, he's like 64 200 pounds and is 18 years old or 17 years old, like, what's he, that body going to be like when he's 25? And I kind of doubt that it's the kind of body that is playing shortstop. And I thought that he uh, swung through a lot of hittable pitches at area codes. And I just, against elite pitching, I didn't think that it was. I thought it was a sign that maybe there's, it's, that maybe the bat-to-ball skills weren't. Like, if you're projecting the third base, I want to feel a little bit better about the bat. And he's unlike anything I've ever seen. Like, don't get me wrong as like an all around mm-hmm. amateur prospect, but he's a pitcher for me. Okay. Um, let me ask you this question and then, and, and we'll let each other go. But <clears throat> I was speaking about this with Dave Cameron recently. The, the almost the, the seductive, but also challenging aspects of being of, of, of the two way player. Right. Yeah. To what degree? Because you you can only have him pitch or hit. Probably there there aren't any. I mean, there are some guys who have the sort of whiff of two way playing in right. uh, in the majors, but there are not any really. I mean, Christian Betancourt maybe, and then Shohei Otani, of course, is like a whole other thing. And he just got hurt, very, run, you know, running to first base this week. So. Right. So it's like very rare that that has kill set. But and so we were talking about in the context, I think, of Casey Kelly, right? Mm. Who was like both a promising shortstop and pitcher, right? And he, he, you know, he's become neither in the major leagues, or you know, he's become neither. Another guy who, just injuries, right? Yeah, and so here's the thing: to what degree, like, if you if you see a guy throwing 96, and then you're like, oh, he can also play shortstop. Like and has like actions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. To what degree does maybe the his allure as a position player? To what degree does it color your overall appraisal of him as a prospect, even though it might not ultimately matter? 
Uh, I think in certain situations it can provide you with a fallback option. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Bush. Yeah, that would be yeah. That's probably one that worked out, even though it was he took a little bit of a circuitous route there. Uh, yeah, I would say a dark route. A dark route. A dark. Yeah. Yeah. The the weird, creepy backwoods road. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I suppose that 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 is the case, but think about all the guys who that has been argued for, and there aren't really any that worked out the other way too. Like the guys who. Aaron Hicks is one of those, and Anthony Ghost is another one where it was like, you know, oh, if he can't hit, we'll just put him on the mound. And Anthony Ghost can't hit, and I mean, I guess lately there have been some rumblings that maybe he'll start throwing, but like, that hasn't happened. Joe Savory, the, the, who's a pitcher and a first baseman at Rice, was like, oh, well, if he, his shoulder looks like Swiss cheese because he pitched at Rice, but... Uh, if it doesn't work out in pro ball, he can just play first base when like that didn't really work out. Um, I'd say if anything, it is, a, it provides the scout with more opportunities to see the prospect being athletic and moving around and just seeing what you otherwise wouldn't be able to see if you were just watching him do one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, conversely, if it's a, if it's a player who you prefer as a position player, but also pitches, uh, then I think it, um, I think there are like certain, not necessarily intangible, but like competitive aspects. There's, there are things about pitching where you're front and center, uh, that are different than when you're like picking your nose in left field. Um, and I think... That, that sort of stage and seeing how kids handle it uh, is, is also valuable information. Because at some point, even as a hitter, you're going to be asked to take that stage. Um, and, you know, if you've never had to do it before, some, you, you know, who knows? So I think seeing, seeing someone be forced to work under a microscope uh, is an important thing. So, like, Jordan Adele in this year's draft, two-way player. He's, like, low 90s with good breaking ball feel on the mound. But I think there's a chance for, like, plus hit, plus power uh, as an outfielder. I got to watch him pitch at area code games when everyone was like, all right, let's just see what this kid can do. And, like, he was he was making kids look horrible (laughs) he was blowing people away and stomping around on the mound and you know i just liked seeing jordan adele (laughs) dominate people (laughs) and enjoy dominating people on the mound (laughs) because i think right so but but right and you're not necessarily you're not necessarily like he's definitely a pitcher now but you wanted it would uh give you a better sense of who he was as a competitor yeah and and just and as an athlete and you know, because play, playing both ways is hard, and if you can do it at a high level among elite competition, like Brandon McKay is doing at Louisville, and like Adele was doing at Area Codes, I think it's, I think it's telling. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I have something to tell you, we are which done. is that it's time. What's that? We're done. We're done. It's time to take the dog. 
to the dog park. And that is not a euphemism for anything. That is literally what's going to happen here. Eric Loganhagen, you are the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. Yeah. And I thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. And that was great and, you know, etc. Anyway. So that was good. It's a good episode. Sure. I'm going to say the other things now. You ready? Yeah, do the things. Yeah. That has been uh, Eric Loganhagen. As I say, uh, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. I am Eric Loganhagen. This has been Fangraphs.com. Thank you.